palace is on fire. And not just the sort of small, inconvenient fire that gets a horrible smell in all the curtains, but that ultimately can be blamed on the servants and laughed about in the morning. No, this is the other sort of fire. The furious, roaring, choking gateway into hell sort of inferno that inevitably ends up with traumatised firefighters picking disconsolately through the scorched and smouldering wreckage 24 hours later. Tereth Palace is properly ablaze, and if Valerian and the others don't get out soon, they are all toast. Out of the firestorm strides a figure Valerian recognises all too well, his erstwhile colleague, and the man he left to his fate in the heart of the great machine, Flint. It is the divine will of the machine that this place be your tomb, the metal-skinned figure intones, pointing at the fleeing remnants of Kairas's aristocracy. If you will not fall to my servants, then you will fall at my own hand. And before he can stop himself, Valerian steps out from the scrum of soldiers, casting his feeble disguise aside, arms spread wide. Let these people go, Flint. It's me you want. I'm the one that left you behind. This is between you and me. And that's when his brain catches up with what his mouth has just done and attempts to abandon ship. Oh, shit. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Crater and Trace infiltrated the Unseen Smuggling Network successfully tracking down the infernal powder storage facilities and the ships ferrying the powder to the secret armada hidden beneath the continent of conflict. But the pair were also in for a nasty shock. As bluecoats and military spread through the docks in the wake of the protracted civil disobedience, it became apparent that the web were blown. Wanted posters were going up everywhere for their arrest and the charge sheet made for sobering reading. With the net drawing in, can the hangman's noose be far behind? Things have been grim. Undeniably, there were dark storm clouds, heavy, black and pendulous, gathering about my plucky band of heroes. A sense of pervading doom and encroaching dread as things spiralled ever further out of control the sort of doom and dread that can leave one a bit paralysed, or even put one off playing. There are times in solo RPGs when we can find ourselves a bit mentally stuck, a little bit overwhelmed or intimidated. We hit a wall, and forward momentum dries up. 
and so it's useful to build up a little toolkit of motivational techniques to draw upon for those times when we need to overcome inertia. A case in point, before starting play on this session and sitting down to write, I was feeling a bit blocked, intimidated even. I left the game for several days, allowing myself some time to recharge, but I still wasn't feeling it. And so, I dug up an instrumental playlist to provide me with some suitably inspiring ambience, something I created for a Judge Dredd RPG campaign that I ran for my group a couple of years back. Heavily 80s influenced, high octane, thumping and driving synthwave, electropunk and power metal, including the likes of Power Glove, The Future Sound of London, Daniel Deluxe and The Prodigy, alongside things like The Dread and animated Dark Knight Returns movie soundtracks. And I'm really glad I did. The music was like creative rocket fuel. With that stuff pounding away in the background, I honestly couldn't type fast enough. Amazing the effect that simple mental tricks can have. I've included a link to my Spotify playlist in the show notes, so have a listen on shuffle if you feel like a trip back to the 80s-style grimdark retro-futurism of Mega City 1. Anyway, things have been pretty bleak for our party in previous chapters, and so I went into this chapter with mixed emotions. Anxiety from what had come before, but optimism that I was closing in on completing the remaining two missions. Whether that optimism is justified or hopelessly, hilariously misplaced remains to be seen. That precarious sense of uncertainty, of possibility, with all future outcomes still open and both disaster and triumph just a dice roll away is what keeps me, and hopefully you, coming back for more. Let's see where the dice take us. To whom it may concern. I had rather hoped to keep my little shop, but if you are reading this, then sadly you have just triggered its destruction. Such a pity, well-appointed property is so hard to find in this city. Yours faithfully, Dr. E. B. Crop. As the spider's eyes flick across the words on the single sheet of paper, her mind is already working overtime. Her world slows to a crawl, her surroundings evaporating into a maze of forking variables as she works the problem faster than the speed of conscious thought. She plunges into memory, sorting through a thousand seemingly random events and conversations, searching for connections, for patterns. And then she has it. Well appointed. She's back in the shop, only now it isn't dark or filled with murderous religious fanatics, or moments from destruction. Instead, it is lit by the warm glow of gaslight, row upon row of vial and jar and bottle lining the shelves, and Dr. Crop is standing just where she was moments before, eyeing her warily. She explores the memory, moving back and forth through it, searching it for clues. And so it was you, Doctor, you who created the pathogen that killed the Whisperer. Dr. Crop nods reluctantly. It was to my shame. Of course, I had no idea what specific purpose it would be turned to, but yes, it was my work, my greed. And all done in the knowledge that someone, somewhere, would pay the price. I just never imagined the effects would be so close to home. The spider nods. 
You realize the risk you now face. You are a loose thread, Doctor. An inconvenience. If I could follow the trail to you, then so might others. The Whisperer's killers are ruthless. If they think there is any danger you might talk, they will have you killed without hesitation. I can offer you sanctuary, a safe house, if you come with me. Dr. Crop smiles. A kind offer, and one for which I really am grateful. But you need not trouble yourself on my account. I am perfectly safe here. This property is well appointed. Right there. In that instant, the doctor's eyes unconsciously flick down, just for the briefest of instants. The spider plays back the memory over and over, orienting herself to see things from the doctor's vantage point. What were they looking at? And then she sees it. Small, innocuous, incredibly easy to miss if one were not looking precisely for it, a neat wooden stud standing proud on the floorboards. She's reaching for Sallow even as she stabs down on it, grabbing the saboteur by the collar of his greatcoat as a trapdoor snaps open at her feet. They are in and sliding down some sort of chute when the light from above abruptly cuts off as the trapdoor slams shut again. The chute begins to level out and they come to a gentle, if undignified, halt just as a deafening explosion from above sends dust and plaster raining down from the heavy oak rafters overhead. Spider struggles to her feet, ears ringing, and takes in her surroundings. A bunker, stocked with provisions. And there, sitting at a writing desk, is Dr. Crop. They look utterly crestfallen. My lovely shop! I had so hoped it might survive! The spider helps Sallow up and fixes Crop with a firm stare. No discussions this time, Doctor. We're leaving, and you're coming with us. Pack what you need. It's time to go. I set myself quite the puzzle here. The last time we saw Sallow and the spider, the shop blew up, and from a narrative perspective, it did rather look as if the game were over for my two investigators. But from a mechanical perspective, the exact opposite was true. Let me explain. I said back in Chapter 12 that we had a successful finesse roll to gain ground on the Enlightenment, but that the what then would have to wait. Well, waiting over. Following Sallow's finesse roll, I made a mistake. I asked the Oracle a simple question. Was the Doctor at home? And that one question led me down a path I really shouldn't have taken. You see, the answer to my question was no because... And of course, that led to the next obvious question, because what? I used the Alone in the Dark Oracle and got a picture of an envelope and a picture of an exploding tower. The interpretation was clear and inescapable. There was a letter informing the reader that the building was rigged to blow. Now, attentive listeners and Blades in the Dark rules lawyers will see what I did wrong here. The guiding gameplay principle that I'd broken... I asked the Oracle a question I shouldn't have. Having just broken into the building, would you ask a real-life GM if the Doctor was at home? No, you wouldn't. Or if you did, you could probably expect the GM to say, you're going to need to find that out for yourself. 
Instead of envisaging an action and then rolling to determine the outcome, I'd violated the play-to-find-out principle. Whoops. And yet, I really loved the idea of the building blowing up. It was cinematic, dramatic, high action and high stakes. And so I went with it. The problem was, this explosion wasn't supported mechanically. No action roll had taken place, and so this event was not a mechanical consequence. It was just window dressing. That meant that my characters would not be injured or inconvenienced by it. And so I had to figure out a way that made narrative sense for my characters to escape, hopefully without too much of a sense of, with one leap, Jack was free. I made a couple of rolls on the Starforged Oracles to help me here, and one in particular gave me a steer. I asked where Dr. Crop was and got the answer, hidden storage. A bunker. And from there, it was just a question of assembling the necessary puzzle pieces into a shape that made story sense. And lo and behold, the Doctor had been located. I suppose the lesson in all this is that it's sometimes okay to screw up, that the rules of the game should be adhered to in general, but that they needn't be a straitjacket. As so often, it's the mistakes and the happy accidents that reveal the most interesting paths. Anyway, the spider made a sway roll to persuade Dr. Crop to join them, and suddenly the mission clock was up to nine out of ten. Almost there. We just need one more successful action check to complete it. But before we see how that all plays out, I think it's time we checked back in on Tatters and Valerian. It dawns on Valerian, rather too late, that this bold and daring ploy of his is just the latest in a string of very poor life choices. At what point did he decide that selflessly throwing himself into dangerous path was a good idea? When was it exactly that his years of highly effective self-serving cowardice gave way to whatever this is? Or saliently, why? What is compelling him to act in a way that runs the every risk of shortening his life by some considerable margin? As if to underscore the point, Flint strides swiftly forward, grips him by the neck and, seemingly without effort, lifts him kicking wildly off his feet. You are incorrect, Valerian. You are not what I seek. I have transcended the petty bonds of the flesh. In the face of the great machine's plans, you are nothing but a minor irritant. The metal man's head tilts to one side, examining his struggling captive dispassionately. And yet, an irritant you remain. Best that you are neutralized. In your case, that is easily done. Flint reaches out with his free hand, prizes Valerian's clamped jaw open and grips his tongue between thumb and forefinger. Without this, you are nothing. Valerian's eyes bulge in horror, his thrashing redoubling as he tries in vain to tear himself free of the vice-like grip. Not this, anything but this. He casts about desperately for any way out, for any possible lifeline, and his eyes lock with those of Mina Montessario. The woman he has intimidated, threatened, lied to, and used. A woman with no good reason to help him, and in the circumstances, every reason to abandon him to his fate. And in spite of all of that, silently he holds her gaze and begs. He's not quite sure what happens next. 
Everything drifts to black. He feels the impact as his body hits the floor. He catches surreal, strobe-like glimpses of Mina and the soldiers closing in on Flint. Weapons swinging, blood spraying and fire raging out of control. And then, mercifully, the world recedes. Tatters, having sprinted down the stairs and into the hall beyond the blazing chapel, cannot quite believe what she is seeing. Flint, steel-skinned, blood-spattered, surrounded by the dead or dying bodies of half a dozen House Tourette soldiers. Mina Montessario, bloody and bruised, trying and failing to get back up to fight on. Valerian, lying unmoving at Flint's feet. She knows what she has to do, despite the loss of her protective charm. She knows what it will cost, and she does it anyway. She whispers the name, and in an instant is there. The demon Sutara, ever present, ever patient, waiting for the moment he knows it will inevitably come. Grant me access, Sutara. Open a path, where and when I say, she demands. Though in truth she knows the tone of command is an illusion at best, a meagre salve that does little to disguise the truth of the situation. She is not the one in control here. Her facade slips. I'm ready to discuss terms. Her eyes flare with purple fire. Her arms spread wide and she cries out as power courses through her. Beneath Flint's feet, a crack opens up, bleeding a borrant light. Black, oozing tentacles writhe up from the fissure, wrapping themselves like obscene lovers around Flint's legs. The steel-skinned man tears one leg free, but the fissure widens further still. Clawed limbs, wrongly jointed, reach up and seize Flint in their vile grasp. More and more blasphemous forms squirm free, separating boils expelling sizzly discharge over their captive. Inexorably, they drag him down into the abyss. Tatters has fallen to her knees, her cries rising in pitch to a shriek of pure agony. Without her demon bane charm, she is experiencing the full horror of her connection to the demon dimensions, and it is unclear whether her body or her mind will be the first to fail. No! Flint cries, desperately trying to claw himself free. The work of the Freak Machine is not yet done! I have not fulfilled my purpose! But to no avail. Yet more of the putrid tendrils wrap themselves around their victim, enveloping him and dragging him down. With an awful final pulse of infernal power, the fissure snaps shut. Tatters, utterly spent, pushed to the limits of her endurance and far beyond, struggles to her feet. She stands, swaying for a moment, surrounded on all sides by death and destruction and fire. And then, as though a puppet master had cut all her strings at once, her mind shuts down, and she pitches forward like a felled oak. And mercifully, she's free. We opened the chapter with Valerian attempting a sway action against a desperate position to distract Flint and let Mina and the others escape. And it should come as no surprise at all that this attempt ended in abject failure. It's never a great idea to fail a role against a desperate position in this game. The consequences can be considerable. In this case, I rolled Lose Something Important, 
and in the context of losing something really important, well, my mind jumped immediately to the one thing that Valerian, above all others, really could not afford to lose. His tongue. If ever there was a time to roll for resist a consequence, this was it. Having his tongue ripped out would be utterly devastating to Valerian, even character-ending. He had to try to resist. And so I envisaged his resistance as making a connection with Mina, to have her save him. I rolled, and Valerian resisted at the cost of two stress, which, coincidentally, was the exact amount of stress that he had remaining. Valerian was down. He's going to earn himself a trauma for that, which I think may turn out to be paranoid, but we'll come back to that later. The resist roll brought Mina and her guards back into the story, but again, as NPCs, their involvement remained very much in the background. This game is all about the PCs. It is worth noting, though, that Tristan Tereth didn't feature in that last scene at all. It wasn't done deliberately. I confess, I just kind of forgot about him. But it does raise the question when I look back on it. What happened to him? Was he part of the fight? Was he killed? Has he done a runner? We're just going to have to wait and see. With Valerian out of the picture, it was time to focus on Tatters. Brave, resourceful, tragically compromised Tatters. This next action role posed me a real conundrum, both in mechanical and narrative terms. We were only at seven of nine on the mission progress clock, and so completing the mission would take two rolls from Tatters. But her stress levels were already extremely high. She couldn't push the roll without suffering so much trauma that she'd be taken out of action, and of course Valerian no longer could assist her. Then there was the narrative positioning. Whatever she did, it somehow had to rescue everyone from an unstoppable, invulnerable killing machine. I could really only see one way to do that, and so I decided to put all my chips on a single roll, knowing that it would result in my team failing their mission. I made an attune roll against a desperate position, and I pushed it and took a devil's bargain. No need to roll on the devil's bargain table for this one, it was obvious what that bargain was going to be. So that gave me four dice, and my roll came up as a straight success. Tatters had teleported Flint straight to hell. However, in spite of that straight success, there were still consequences. Namely, trauma brought on by burning her last two stress points, and, of course, the outcome of that devil's bargain. Satara has staked an even greater claim on the young Akarnist soul. And, narratively, there was another consequence. Back in Chapter 11, Tatters lost her demon-bane charm as the result of yet another devil's bargain. I said at that time that losing her charm might spell trouble if she needed to treat with demons any time soon. And so it has transpired. To mechanically reflect the narrative agony she has endured, I'm going to inflict a level 1 harm, which I will call Brutalized. And so, with Tatters down, and the mission track on only 9 out of 10, the mission to kidnap Mina has ended in failure. Sure, the wedding has been stopped, but Mina remains out of the crew's hands. We'll have to see what the consequences of that are, but on the bright side, everyone is still alive, and Flint is out of the picture. A qualified failure or success, depending on your levels of optimism. Back to Sallow and the Spider, then. They are in a much better position, both still functioning, both with a bit of spare stress and within only a single point of mission completion. 
Surely nothing can go horribly wrong there, right? The journey back is mostly made in uneasy silence. In part due to the traumas faced in the course of their mission, but in at least equal measure due to the sights that greet them. The cello leads them through the rubble-strewn streets of the Mercer's Quarter. The fighting is all but done, and it's plain to see who has come out on top. As they pick their way past ruined and fire-blackened buildings, the bodies come into view. Some are obviously crows, some look like they might have been from the red sashes. All of them are spread-eagled, nailed up to doors and shuttered windows with silver nails, throats torn out. It seems the Undying have wholly embraced the motifs of their recent acquisition. Sacred Seven, what's happened out here? The Doctor mutters, horror plain on his face. And why in Gora's good name did you make me abandon my nice warm bunker? Do you really think we're safer out here? He has a point, the spider is forced to admit. If anything, this dreadful stillness is worse than the running battles that preceded it. There is a palpable sense of dread hanging over the city, the promise of a terrible new order. We'll be fine once we're back at the safe house, she whispers, though she's genuinely not sure she believes it herself. Just stay quiet and keep moving. They head south, but behind them they can all clearly make out the looming, ominous presence of the Mustang, rising up above the rooftops, silhouetted against the pre-dawn sky, a potent symbol of the change in power here. The Undying have arrived in Kairos in incontrovertible fashion, and the shockwaves of that arrival are sure to prove profound. Right now, though, the spider is more worried about her companions. If the Doctor looks anxious, Salem looks worse. Never the most stable of the crew at the best of times, the bony saboteur is now looking especially twitchy. The spider knows this mission has been hard on them both, but this new level of tension is really playing on Salem's nerves. He's jumping in shadows, glancing nervously from one rooftop to the next, chewing obsessively at his fingernails. The spider knows him well enough to know that he is at the very end of his rope. Which way, Sallow? she whispers, though of course she knows the route perfectly well. Cheap Street, across Cranthus Plaza, then left onto the mews, Sallow mutters, only partially distracted from his worrying. Gets us into the markets and out of Mercer's. Partly distracted is better than nothing, the spider reflects, and nods in agreement. Makes sense. There may even be traders starting up with the coming of the dawn. The sun will be up soon. You've got this. And in spite of the ever-present threat of vampire attack and the constant reminders of the consequence of such an attack, Sallow does indeed hold it together. As they put more distance between themselves and the aftermath of the bloody street war, the sun climbs over the horizon, bathing the boarded-up windows of the old opera house's upper story with a warm, orange glow. In spite of all the deadly perils arrayed against them, they have triumphed. They have fulfilled their mission and escaped their pursuers. They are free. Mission success. For a second time, and two out of three ain't bad, all things considered. 
there's been quite the heavy price paid by Sallow and the Spider in terms of stress burned, and Sallow has picked up some harm. But the mission actually went off surprisingly well, considering some of the threats they faced along the way. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just back up and quickly step through the mechanics behind that last scene. And rest assured, it won't take long. There was just a single action roll. Sallow made a prowl roll to get them safely home against a desperate position. The effect of this roll was reduced by one due to the frazzled harm condition he'd picked up earlier. But that was fine. The mission clock needed only one more tick. The spider assisted, but that still only gave me two dice. Plenty of risk of failure, and from a desperate position that really could spell trouble. After some deliberation, I decided to take a devil's bargain. The result was a success with a consequence which turned out to be harm. Given that this was a desperate position, I decided this needed to be a level 2 harm, and I called it overwhelmed. Sallow's in a pretty bad way, but he is still standing. In order to get a sense of the circumstances of their journey, as well as to understand the shifting balance of power amongst my city factions, I asked the Oracle if the vampires were winning the street war, and I got a yes and. Not only had they already won, but they had won in style. And there we have it, another successful mission, an opportunity for the crew to rest and recuperate, and another step closer to putting a spanner in the works of their enemies. Even the failure of the mission to capture Mina is not a total bust. At least the wedding was interrupted, even if the bride wasn't recovered. All in all, a pretty good night's work. What's that? The devil's bargain that Sallow had to make? Oh, I wouldn't lose too much sleep over that. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. Let's not dwell on the negatives when there's so much to be thankful for. Instead, let's focus on the important question. With the Unseen's hornet nest well and truly kicked, with the wedding of the year, along with most of its guests, up in flames, and with Kyrus's forces of law and order out in force and on the trail of the web, what on earth are our crew going to do next? We'll find out next time. I hope you'll join me. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening. Sallow 
has been up on the Opera House rooftop all day and half the night. It's where he comes when he needs to be alone, up here, feeding his birds. They're beautiful, his birds. Little miracles of nature, perfectly crafted machines. For the life of him, he can't understand the contempt the others hold them in. Why do they call his pigeons rats with wings, when doves are exactly the same thing, just in a different colour? He glances down, notices his hands are shaking uncontrollably, and lets out a long, shaky sigh. It's been a long time since his nerves were quite this shot. Is it done, then? The voice, deep and cultured and utterly, utterly inhuman, sends an ice-cold jolt of terror through Sallow. Red eyes glow in the darkness, and then Lord Tortimus steps silently from out of the shadows, a pigeon perched in the palm of an upraised hand. None of the birds on the rooftop so much as look in his direction. Not trusting his own voice, Sallow can only nod dumbly in reply. Good. You have done well, Sallow. The elegant vampire smiles. All in all, a fine night's work from all concerned. And as you have so diligently kept your word, of course I shall keep mine, as we agreed. Tortimus steps up onto the Opera House roof's low wall, looking out over the city, and closes his hand around the pigeon perched there. Though the grasp is tender, the implicit threat is unmistakable. He looks back at the saboteur with a sad smile. Wonderful creatures, don't you think? So perfectly suited to their purpose. A word of advice, Mr. Sallow, freely given. You might do well to remain up here, safe among your birds, out of harm's way. Be true to your purpose. Harbour no illusions as to what that purpose is, and you may yet survive the interesting times in which we live. I wish you well. And with that, the vampire steps off the roof, the released bird fluttering up and away into the night sky.